Well, how fun to see all of you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verse 1 through 29. Can you believe that we are in the last three chapters of Matthew? Now, Matthew 26 is really long, but Matthew 28 is really short. And so we are almost done with the book of Matthew, which is exciting. I have just loved it. And I am looking forward to what we do next. The Bible is so full of so many good things. And so it's just, it's just awesome that we get to just move from one book to the next and studying God's word. This, this section shifts. Um, in Matthew 26, 27, and 28, this is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. That was the point of why Jesus came to this earth. And so we've been looking at, you know, starting in Matthew, just looking at the birth of Jesus, looking at the example, the way that he lived, the things that he did, the things that he taught. And it has just laid such an incredible foundation. But now Matthew's attention goes to the reason Jesus came. And that was to die and to save us from our sins. He was a Messiah. Um, the one that the Old Testament promised would come. And we have just the most amazing section. And one of the things that I love about this 29 verses that we're going to be looking at is it really does begin and end with Jesus. And, and we'll be looking at that. But we're going to see a contrast. We're going to see two contrasts that happen in this passage. It's a contrast of genuine worship is the first contrast. And it's a contrast between Mary and Judas. Mary worships Jesus. Judas is just religious and he blends in. And there is this huge contrast between Mary and Judas. With the disciples, there's this contrast in faithfulness. The 11 disciples are faithful. And as we read this story, and as you guys have been, you know, just go, as we've gone through the book of Matthew and we've looked at the disciples, I could see somebody taking a step back and going, what do you mean? Why, why are you calling them faithful? They're all, they're all going to abandon Jesus. They, they have all these things, all these problems in their life. How could you call them faithful? And yet we find out that it is not perfection that is faithful. It is a genuine heart, a genuine relationship with Christ that makes faithful. And so it's not there, it's not that they were these wonderful, amazing people, it's that they knew Jesus. And there's this contrast in this passage between these 11 disciples with all of their failures and Judas, who has no heart for Jesus. So Judas is the bad example in both sections, worship and faithfulness. And this is the thing that I love about reading scripture. And one of the things I love about this passage is that as we read it, we think about who Jesus is, and then we watch the way people respond to Jesus, and it tells us. We, we look at this and we go, okay, that was a real-life person. Look how they're responding. That's how I want to respond. And then we see other people that respond incorrectly, and we go, okay, that was a real-life person. They responded in the wrong way. I don't want to be like that. And so this passage is about Jesus, but we see these examples of what we want to be and what we don't want to be. And so that's the challenge for us this morning, and it's going to be exciting. It's going to be awesome. And uh, this is just a really, I mean, it's just, I, I guess this is like every part of the Bible. It's just really wonderful. So if you have your Bibles, let's start. And I want to consider initially 
just a contrast in worship. And the thing that I want to point out in this beginning section is that Jesus is the object of our worship. And, and we're going to see something that is a theological challenge in this passage. It has to do with God's sovereignty, God's election, God's power, God's control. And, and that's a challenge. You know, as I run across these doctrines in Scripture, um, you know, I was not... I, I didn't grow up uh, just believing God is sovereign. You know, Ephesians chapter 1, God has chosen us and predestined us before the foundation of the world. I, I didn't grow up as a Christian and have those thoughts in my mind. As I studied and read Scripture, those things were all troubling to me. But the more I read Scripture and the more I see that God is sovereign, he's powerful, he's in control of everything, the more comforting that is an incredible blessing that it is. And it's also a reminder that, that we don't have theology based on logic. We have theology based on God's truth. And there are things sometimes that are hard to put together. The Bible also teaches that people are responsible and people make real choices. We're not just robots. We're not non-actors in life. We make real choices and we are responsible for those choices. And uh, so that's what we're going to see in this passage. And how exactly do those things fit together? You know, that, that's tough. But as believers, we don't deny anything in Scripture. We don't approach Scripture and say, hey, what are my preferences? Oh, I choose to believe this and I choose not to believe that. That's not how we function. We just look and we say, God, what do you say? What is true? I'm going to embrace that and I'm going to do my best to figure out how these things fit together. I'm not going to deny things you say because I don't like them. So, hey, let's jump in here. This is an amazing passage. Matthew 26, 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, and he's preached this, he's been preaching this sermon that has been so powerful that, that just points to eternity, salvation, what it means to have a relationship with God, what is at stake in eternity, forever with God or forever separated from God in punishment. So when he's finished preaching these things, he says to his disciples, verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That's why Jesus came. You remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned? One of the first things God says is, I'm going to solve this problem. Genesis 3.15, uh, where he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your seed and her seed, talking about Jesus being born of a virgin. God starts the Bible by promising that he's going to send Jesus to solve the sin problem that Adam and Eve created. And Jesus says this about himself, Matthew 20, 28. He says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, a ransom for many. That is why Jesus came, is to die. And this is what he says. You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in that place of the, in the, place of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. 
but they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. That's one of the things that marked the Pharisees. Um, they're plotting. They're planning. They, they want this stealth. And they are marked by they care about what people think. They are driven and motivated by the crowds. Jesus always did what was right. He didn't care about the crowds. And so the Pharisees are saying, we've wanted to kill Jesus, his whole ministry. In fact, it's crazy. Jesus, right after his temptation, like at the very beginning of his ministry, the Pharisees start wanting to kill him. There, there are many times, like, like one time he's talking about Abraham, and he, he talks about Abraham as though he saw him. And the Pharisees are like, what? You're not, even how, you're not even old enough. How could you have seen Abraham? And then they want to kill him. They, they try to throw him off a cliff, but he just disappears because it's not his time. Uh, they, they've been trying and plotting to kill him his entire ministry, and they're unable. And then right here, they say, let's kill Jesus. Let's figure out how to do it, but let's not do it during the feast. Guess when they kill Jesus? During the feast. Jesus says... I lay my life down. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down. The timing on the death of Jesus was completely his. It was not in the hands of the people who killed him. God sovereignly chose when Jesus would die, how he would die, and that sovereignty impacts everybody involved, including Judas. And so God is in control. He chooses they didn't choose, he chose. And so, well, <laughs> they also chose. But the ultimate chooser was God. And so they decide they're not going to kill him, and instead they do. Um, look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This is a verse that just talks about this incredible event. It's Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, and you see these two things put together. He's preaching to them, and he, he's talking about Jesus, and he says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God knew it, but he didn't just know it. He planned it. That's kind of like predestination, right? Ephesians 1, that, we were, that God predestined us, predetermined, but he also knew. He foreknew. And so there's foreknowledge and there's predetermination, and God just says, I determined this. And it says that he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then it doesn't say, which, you know, you had nothing to do with it. You, you couldn't help yourselves. It's not your fault. That is not what he goes on to say here, Peter. And he goes on to say, which you crucified. And you killed by the hands of lawless men. They are responsible. They are sinful. They chose to kill Jesus. And that's, that's the thing that happens with logic. Um, people will look at um, all the places in Scripture where it talks about the fact that we choose God. That we make choices in life. And then they'll say, okay, so if that's true, then that means God does not choose and then they come up with all kinds of gymnastics to ignore all the things that the Bible says about God choosing. And so they get their logic and they take one piece of truth that God says and then they reason to a place 
that disregards things that Scripture says. And then there are other people who, who they, they just, it, it sets well with them, and they land on God's election and predestination and all those things, and, and they say, this, well, I like this, and I'm high-minded, and I, I honor the holiness of God more than everybody else, and I'm more God-centered than the man-centered people who they focus on choice. I focus on God's election and God's choice because I'm just more spiritual than everyone else. And then they focus on that, and they minimize, and they discount, and they ignore all the things that the Bible says about personal responsibility and real choice. And they even come up with things about prayer. You hear people say things about prayer like, well, we pray to change us, not to change life. And then they ignore all the passages where God sends a a prophet to a king to say, you're going to die. Get your affairs in order. And then he prays, oh, Lord, please don't let me die. And then God says to the prophet, go back, tell him I heard his prayer, and I'm going to give him another 18 years. They ignore all those passages. They ignore the passages in James where it says that James was a man with a nature, or Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed that it wouldn't rain, and then it didn't rain. And that they ignore all those things that show that, no, we are real actors and we make choices and those choices have consequences. And so the thing is, is that when we read Scripture, we take it all. We don't just pick the things we like and throw out the other ones. And sometimes we can't tell exactly how those things fit together. And when it comes to the death of Christ, it was planned. And God was in control. And God was in charge. And Jesus died at the perfect time and in the perfect place. And Jesus is the object of our worship. And that's not just some intellectual thing. It is intellectual. But that encompasses our entire heart. And that's one of the things that we're going to see in this passage is that you have these, you know, Caiaphas, the religious leaders, and this is what's wrong with religion. Judas is what's wrong with religion, but Caiaphas, he's the high priest. His job is to take Israel and to lead them and to organize them to love and worship Jesus, to be ready for the Messiah when he comes. And instead, everybody shows up in his house to plan the death of Jesus. That's what's wrong with religion. And, and we live in a day where people just feel like, oh yeah, any religion, as long as you're sincere, it's all good. No, that is not true. There is one way. It is through a genuine relationship with Christ. And there are so many false religions that don't lead to Christ But even beyond that, something about this, the Jewish nation, that Judaism at this time was not a false religion. The leader of the true religion didn't know God and planned the death of Jesus. The the contrast that we're going to see in this passage, Judas was not a pagan. He was not worshiping a false god. He was one of the 12 disciples, and he didn't know Jesus. 
And we need to always be taking a step back. And just because somebody goes to a Christian church, just because somebody is a Christian leader, just because somebody fits in the category of Christianity doesn't mean we follow them. It doesn't mean that they know the Lord. And just because somebody shows up here on Sunday morning and would say yes to all the things that we believe doesn't mean they know the Lord. And we need to think about that. And we need to think about that personally. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And you are, unless you fail the test. Well, what's the test? That's, okay, that's a different sermon. <laughs> but we're going to see corrupt and false religions. Uh, by the way, just a, a side note, um, they found this um, ossuary, and this is the casket of Caiaphas's son. It's from the first century. That's one of the interesting things. Like as you read the Bible, there's all these connections. All the people discussed are real people. They really existed. And there's not evidence for everything, but it is amazing how much of these kinds of things show up in history. Now, this was the time of the Passover. And uh, the Passover, just in case you don't remember, the Passover was the celebration of Israel leaving Egypt. And so it was the Exodus. And you remember there was all those plagues, all those things that God did, which many people nowadays would like to deny that all those things talked about in Genesis didn't really happen. By the way, all the Christian leaders who deny those things, I put them in the category of Caiaphas, a religious leader that doesn't know the Lord. The Bible's talking about these plagues that God did, and he did them all the way the Bible said he did them. And the last plague was um, the Pharaoh just refused to listen to God speaking to him. And so the last plague, um, God says, okay, I'm getting you out of Egypt, and here's how I'm going to do it. I am going to kill the firstborn of everybody in Egypt and in Israel. But if you're in Israel, I'm going to give you a way out. Here's your way out. You take a lamb, you kill this lamb, you put its blood on the door frames of your house, on the sides and on the top. It's kind of like a cross. And if you put this lamb's blood on your door, I will pass over your house. That's why it's called Passover. And I won't kill your firstborn son. So if you're a Jew and you didn't obey God and you didn't put the blood on the door frames, you would wake up to a dead firstborn child in that house. But God says, there is a way out. I'm going to make a way out. And so they did this, and this was a feast that went on that was described. And that Passover lamb pointed to Jesus. This was the last Passover. Now, there's nothing wrong with us as believers celebrating the Passover, like for us to go back in history in a sense and go, okay, what does this mean and how did that work? And, and, and to kind of see what we can learn from that. But you want to know something? For the most part, everybody who celebrates the Passover today does not know Jesus. They, it is empty religion. Jewish people following these old traditions have rejected Jesus. They've rejected the Messiah. They're just like Caiaphas, ignoring everything and doing these Old Testament religious things. But 
the Jewish nation today and Jews today don't actually even obey what the Scripture says. They don't go to a temple and sacrifice. There is no temple. And so for the most part, that is a dead religion of people who've rejected Christ, and we have a heart for them because we know that God loves them and we know that they are God's special nation and God has a plan for the nation of Israel. But for right now, they are hard-hearted, they are rebellious, and they have rejected Christ. And um, this is the Passover. This was the last legitimate Passover. And Jesus was the fulfillment. He was the Passover lamb. And we don't need to celebrate it anymore because this feast that was meant to point to the coming of Jesus happened. And now we don't still sacrifice animals. We don't do a Passover. We don't do all those things because Jesus came. And now we celebrate the Lord's Supper and he replaced the Passover with the Lord's Supper and that's what we celebrate now. Uh, The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Okay, Jesus is the object of our worship. Let's look at Mary. Now, Mary is not named in this passage, uh, but Mary is named in John chapter 12, verse 3. Um, nor, in most of the, the, other, the other gospels, the other three gospels just talk about a woman, but when you compare all of them, we know that this is Mary, and she was a wholehearted worshiper. And for you and I, We need to be wholehearted worshipers the way Mary was a wholehearted worshiper. Let me read this. This is amazing. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany, and just so you know what's happening here, this story happens a previous week. This is not happening right now. Matthew's telling the story of the end of of this last week of Jesus, and then he reaches back to a week before, and he brings in a story to intentionally contrast the worship of Mary and Judas. And so this is a story, this 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 is something that he's doing to intentionally contrast something. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, so Jesus has healed this man. And a woman came up to him, that's Mary, with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. Um, This is a picture of a flask. It's it's not from the time of Jesus. This is older than than the time of Jesus, but that's what it would have looked like. And it says that she takes this flask of very expensive ointment. One of the things that we learn is that it was worth more than 300 denarii. It was worth almost a year's, more like almost a year's salary. This is extravagant. It, it is amazing. Like the, the amount of money that was involved here. Think about what do people make in a year? That's what this costs. And that's what she shows up with. It was very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when we read the other gospel accounts, she also poured it on his feet, and she dried her, his feet with her hair. And so she's there, and she's worshiping him, and she's pouring out this incredibly expensive perfume. Look at verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. They were angry at her. We'll come back to this. She's showing up, 
she's worshiping Jesus, and the disciples are mad. Um, they rebuke her, we find out in some other passages. And um, it says that they're angry, and this is what they say. Um, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. We're going to look at that in a moment. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? And in the other passages, he said to them, leave her alone. Jesus steps in. He confronts them. For she has done a beautiful thing to me. You always have the poor with you. You will not always have me. And Jesus emphasizes the me. Me, you will not always have. Jesus prioritizes himself. Mary is prioritizing Jesus. And in our lives and in our worship and in church, Jesus is the priority. And we'll come back to this, but a lot of ways that we criticize other people, uh, they sound really good. Like, this could have been given to the poor. This could have been given to the poor. There's all kinds of empty religious legalisms that we use to be hard on other people. And we've got to be very careful because the disciples are criticizing somebody who's worshiping Jesus, and Jesus comes first. In pouring this ointment out on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done, what she, will ha- what she has done will also be told in memory of her. We're still talking about her worship every time we preach the gospel. You know, when you think about Simon the leper, God is good, and he was good to Mary. And, and Jesus healing Simon the leper, that was a sign of who he was, but it was also an expression of God's love. And Mary loves Jesus. Remember Mary and Martha? Martha's like, hey, I'm serving this dinner, and I'm doing all the work. And Mary's like sitting there at Jesus' feet. Jesus, tell her to get up and help me. And what was Mary doing? She was sitting at Jesus' feet. She was learning. She was hanging on every word. Are we people like that, that hang on every word of Jesus? She, she round, round, she's probably not a rich person, but somehow she rounds up like a year's worth of pay. Very expensive and gives it to Jesus. Do we extravagantly, generously give to God? You know, we don't pressure people for money in this church, but I just want you to know, if you are a faithful Christian, you give generously. And, and that's for me, We can hammer people. We can manipulate people. We can try to squeeze money out of people. Or, if giving in our church isn't what it should be, let's forget about money. Let's just actually say, okay, giving in our church isn't what it should be. Our people are spiritually immature. Let's work on their spiritual health. Because giving is an expression of spiritual health. People that don't give are not spiritually healthy. It's not about the money. It's about a heart that says, God, I love you. Everything I have came from you, and there's nothing I wouldn't give you. 
when a missionary, some person who's faithfully honoring and serving the Lord shows up and has a need, and we think about the nice house we live in. We think about the nice cars that we drive. We think about the, I used to think about this, like our money seemed really tight, but we used to buy Starbucks every once in a while. And I used to think, bottom line is, if I got money to buy Starbucks, I got money to meet any spiritual need that God puts in front of me. What matters more, my cup of coffee or somebody in another country that needs to hear the word? To be able to support somebody who's dedicated their life to honoring the Lord. So, worship. When we worship God, we give generously. He has our attention. We show up to worship. I think about how does that reflect itself on Sunday morning? Like there's all kinds of busyness and all kinds of things going on at the church. But does worship take over our life? Do we think on Saturday night I need to get sleep so I don't fall asleep in church? On Sunday morning on the way, are we organizing and planning so that we can get there early? So that we can, so that we can come in. Sometimes people show up and, and you'll see them sitting in the corner and they're just kind of in prayer. They're, they're praying for the service. They're praying for people who are going to show up. They're praying for the Sunday school teachers. They're thinking about, man, I was trying to share the gospel with my neighbor. And it's so hard to talk to him. And, and I feel all this pressure, and when I talk to them, they're just not open to hearing it. But you know what? We got a church full of like third graders, fourth graders, fifth graders. They're the kids of Christian parents. And there's going to be people sitting in a classroom sharing the gospel with those kids. And man, that's so much easier than talking to this old person who doesn't have a foundation of the gospel laid in his life. I'm going to go do my part. To share the gospel with the easiest possible people to share the gospel with. I just think there's something wrong when you can't find Sunday school teachers. It's people who don't actually understand the purpose of life. That is such an amazing, wonderful ministry. So when you can't find Sunday school teachers, we could twist people's arms, pressure them, manipulate them. Or we could just think we haven't helped people see why they exist on this earth. And that's the way it is actually with every ministry, with giving, with serving, with functioning. You don't have to pressure and manipulate uh, Christians to do the stuff they're supposed to do. Just teach them to think like Christians, and then they'll automatically do it. And so it's an expression. These things are all an expression of maturity, but it's one of the things we think about. She loved God. She was extravagant in her giving, generous. And then here we have Judas. He is a corrupted self-worshipper. Judas is a corrupted self-worshipper. So, and I just want you to know, it says disciples here, right? But guess what we find out? When you read John, this was Judas. And Judas was the one who rebuked her. Judas is the one who said it. Well, then why does it say disciples? Judas drove it. It was his heart. It was his attitude. But guess what? The other disciples joined in. Now you think about that. Sit around church, spiritually mature person. Oh, yeah, we really trust them, and they've been around for a long time. And, and they start communicating a bad attitude. Uh, they start having a rebellious attitude toward leaders. They start criticizing people, gossiping, undermining they start encouraging 
a judgmental attitude toward other people. Well, if they're doing it, it must be okay. They're spiritually mature. I mean, heck, Judas was a very trusted, exalted disciple. He was the one who took care of the money. Like, they're looking around and go, okay, who's going to keep, keep track of our money? Judas. And when he starts disregarding God, by the way, this happens in Christian homes. You, got, like, you get kids growing up, and they grow up in a home with parents that are supposed to be spiritually mature, and they just encourage, and they model, and they demonstrate a terrible attitude. You know what kids are supposed to do? They're supposed to go, I love my parents, and I honor my parents, but when I read the Bible, that's not what it says we're supposed to do. That's not how it says we're supposed to talk. That's not how it says we're supposed to think. And when you show up and sit in a Bible study... When somebody starts spouting things that are anti-Christian and oppose God's word, we don't go, well, they've been in church for a long time. They've been exalted to these wonderful positions. No. What does God say? Who does he say we're supposed to be? We don't just follow blindly the examples of people around us like Judas. Plenty of Judases sitting in the church. And not just Judas, because Peter's had some issues too. In Galatians 2, Paul has to confront him. So the, the Christians that fail, they're not all Judas, but some of them are. And we don't just randomly move along with the crowd. We honor the Lord in our life. Why this waste? Well, John tells us that it's not because Judas cared about the poor. That sounded pretty good, right? This money... A hundred grand just given to, like, worship Jesus. Could have been given to the poor. And, uh, but it, it tells us what his real motivation was. It wasn't the poor. It's because he kept the money and he used to help himself to it. He's like, man, with an extra hundred grand in here, I could pull out 20 grand and nobody will know. There are so many people who label judgmental, legalistic, unkind attitudes in a way that sounds spiritual. But the truth is, if they really loved God, if they really honored the Lord, that's not how their attitude would be expressed. And they would love people. They wouldn't be judgmental. wouldn't be prideful toward people. So that's Judas. We have a culture, by the way, that's totally focused on self-worship. Um, people just think everything's about them. They pick the theology they like. Uh, they, they make decisions about their life. It's not what does God say is right and wrong. What do I decide is right and wrong? Oh, this is right for me, and this is who I think I am. I don't, I don't care what God says about who I am. I decide who I am. We have a culture full of self-worship. But that's not what Jesus wants. Jesus wants people who worship him. And in this contrast... Um, we need to remember this. 1 Samuel 2.30, For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. We want God to honor us, not people. We disregard God. He's going to disregard us. That's not what we want. And that impacts everything about what we do. Let's look at this second contrast. It's a contrast in faithfulness. Look at verse 26, and as you read these passages in the Gospels, this is partly motivated by Jesus' rebuke of Ju Judas. Like, Judas gets rebuked a week earlier, and he's troubled, he's bothered, he's unhappy about the fact that Jesus rebuked him. 
Um, kind of like Proverbs talks about a fool. Re- rebuke a wise man and he'll love you. Rebuke a fool and he'll hate you. Remember uh, Jesus and Cain, or I'm sorry, God and Cain, where God's just saying to him, you have a bad attitude. Your countenance has fallen. If you do the right thing, then you'll be happy, but you're doing the wrong thing and now you're unhappy. And God confronted Cain and he blew him off and that's what fools do. When people who love them and speak the word of God to them talk to them about things, they hate them, they ignore the instruction, it's because they're fools. And for us, hey, let's not be a fool like Judas. There's a contrast, right? Faithfulness and unfaithfulness, genuine worship with self-worship. And it says in verse 14, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. You know, Judas was one of the 12. Psalm 41.9, Jesus loved Judas. It says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Judas was a bad example. He hated God. He had every opportunity And so he is an example of spiritual unfaithfulness. Well, we'll come back and just think about Judas and how he fit in with the disciples, but let's let's shift to the disciples, their faithfulness to God. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, verse 17, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man to say to him, teacher, The teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your home with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed him, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at the table with them. This whole Passover thing, Jesus planned it. You know, Luke 2.41 tells us that Jesus had been going to celebrate the Passover every year since he was a little kid. Jerusalem is totally full. They didn't just walk into town and everything fell into place. Like, that's one of those things. God's sovereign. But Jesus is planning. He, he lived life the way you and I are supposed to live. He's planning. He's making arrangements. He's organizing things. Why? Because the things we do matter. Yes, God was sovereign and everything fell into place, but Jesus did all the things he was supposed to do so they would fall into place, just like you and I are supposed to do. So Jesus is planning everything. He's planning the lodging. He's getting a hold of people. He's getting everything all organized and set up. He's telling his disciples what to go do, to go get the lamb, to organize everything. Jesus is not like the illustration of the virgins who ran out of oil because they didn't plan. Jesus wasn't standing there with the lamp and going, I ran out of oil, but... I'm God, so let me make some extra oil for myself. No, Jesus didn't do that. He did the planning that we're all supposed to do. And he was planning for spiritual significance. Jesus is, this is the hardest time in his life. He's looking to go to the cross to die, but he is organizing and he's planning all of these things with the spiritual well-being of his disciples in mind. He's not randomly going somewhere. He's thinking about, I'm going to send them, and these are things they need to see, and I want them to do this part. He sent two of his disciples to go make the preparations. He's thinking about, what does this person need? How can I help them grow? It's kind of like youth pastors who go off to summer camp, and they don't plan things. Or all they think about is, 
Are we going to have food? Are we going to have fun? Or do they sit down and say, why are we going? We're going so that people can have a spiritual opportunity to hear and learn. So how do we make that happen? Well, we explain to everybody, this is what's supposed to happen. This is why we're going. And then when you're planning the schedule, we can't get the kids all tired and then at the end of the day do the sermon. That's one of the most important things. So let's put that in the schedule before everyone's tired. And it's thinking about how everything lays out, and it's prioritizing the right things. And Jesus planned all of this so that the disciples would learn what he wanted them to learn. You know, his disciples, um, they weren't faithful because they were perfect. Their faithfulness was an expression of Jesus' love for them. This is where Jesus washes their feet. They're all sitting down. The other gospel accounts explain that Jesus sits down, throws a uh, towel around his waist, and goes and washes their feet. He loves them. He is planning this for them. And it says this, and as they were eating, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful they were faithful to Jesus from their heart. They cared about him. It was very sorrowful, and they began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? You know, faithfulness is not per perfection. These disciples, right after this, you want to know what they do? They get into a fight with each other about who's the greatest. I mean, all this is going on. Jesus washing their feet. He's saying, if I'm your teacher and I wash your feet, you need to wash other people's feet. And they go, great, thanks, Jesus. Hey, who's the greatest? They get into this little debate. Their faithfulness is not perfection. It isn't. It's that their heart was with Jesus. Their faithfulness included, to some degree, recognizing their own weakness. Jesus says, somebody's going to betray me. And do you want to know what they don't all do? They don't all start pointing at each other and saying, it's probably him, it's probably him, it's probably him. That's not what they do. They, they say, Jesus, is it me? You know, that's something to think about. They don't go, yeah, Judas, that guy, he's a knucklehead. It's probably him. He blended in so well with the disciples that when Jesus says, somebody's going to betray me, nobody thinks it's Judas. I mean, that's how unfaithful people blend in in church sometimes. And so they don't think it's Judas. They're like, is it me? Like they're, they're afraid that they may be the ones that betray Jesus. They have a sense of their own weakness. And then it goes all the way around to Judas. Now Judas knows he's the one and he's the one that's going to betray Jesus. And so he goes, uh, just like with everybody else. Is it me? And Jesus says, yeah, it's you. And Jesus is going to send him off. You know, one of the things that when you think about the Lord's Supper, uh, we celebrate the Lord's Supper with genuine believers. The Lord's Supper is not for everybody. It's for people who know Christ. And, and we don't do like a little spiritual share, share your testimony before you take the Lord's Supper. Now, just so you know, there are churches that you can't take the Lord's Supper unless you have shared your testimony with somebody and they, they believe that you're a believer, and then unless you've been baptized, 
you can't take the Lord's Supper. A lot of churches, if you're not baptized, you can't take the Lord's Supper. And it's because they say, no, if you're a Christian, you'll share your testimony. If you're a Christian, you are baptized. Like those are just things Christians do. They don't make, they don't get you into heaven, but that's just the basic baseline. God says, get baptized if you're a Christian. All Christians obey. So Christians are all baptized. Um, we don't do that here. Um, we leave it between you and the Lord. But the Lord's Supper is for believers, and it is interesting that in this first Lord's Supper, Jesus sends Judas out, and then he celebrates the Lord's Supper with his disciples. It says, the Son of Man, look at verse 24. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. That's God's sovereignty as it is written of him. God chose this. Jesus is going to come. He's going to die. It's God's plan. He goes as it is written. But woe, it says this, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus just says that for Judas, he would have been better off never dead, never born. He is going to spend forever separated from God, being punished for his rebellion against God for having every opportunity and squandering it. Yes, it was God's sovereign plan, but Judas was not a victim. He chose this. He heard Jesus, he knew Jesus, and he betrayed Jesus, and he is responsible personally for that. This was a real choice that he made. And to have some idea that he had no choice, no, he did have a choice, and this is what he chose. And the Bible tells us in the other passages that Satan wasn't going to leave this to a demon. Satan indwelled Judas himself to go make sure that the job got done. And we're going to close with this last section, and that is that Jesus is the object of our faithful service. Look at Matthew 26, 26. Now they were eating, and Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. Jesus, in the same way that the Passover, they did the Passover and then they ex exited uh, uh, Egypt, Jesus is going to do the Passover and then he's going to die. And he's going to tell them forever, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body. Well, Jesus also said, um, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And nobody was like showing up. Well, Jesus is a vine. We've got to make sure we water him. Um, Jesus said, I'm the door, and they never said, well, let's oil Jesus' hinges, you know, so he doesn't, you know, as we open and close the door. This is a figure of speech, and Jesus emphasizes what the point of it is. It's not that the elements spiritually turn into the body and blood of Jesus and that we're actually eating that. That is missing the point. He says, do this in remembrance of me. The problem with the doctrines of transubstantiation, which is that it turns into the body and blood of Jesus, is it takes focus off of Jesus and who he was and what he did, and it puts it on this bread that I eat. And then the doctrine of transubstantiation, it, says, it talks about that it's ex operato, which is by nature of eating. It's like a magic pill that you eat wrong. It is faith in Jesus, the body and the blood. These things represent the body and blood of Jesus, and we do it in remembrance of him. 
And those are not insignificant belief issues. And so it just says, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup when he had given thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. The celebration of the Lord's Supper is remembering that Jesus is coming back. It's his body and it's his blood, but he had not even died yet. That was going to happen in the future. And of course, we could get into a lot more of that, but the focus of our faithful service is Jesus This happened, what Jesus did was for the forgiveness of our sins. Our right standing before God is based on his work, not our work. And we see that with the disciples, right? These men with all kinds of failures and all kinds of problems, and they messed everything up, but they were faithful. They loved Jesus. He worked through them, did incredible things, and their standing was never based on them. We see Judas who betrayed Jesus, and guess what? Next week... We'll talk about Peter, because he did too. But there was a big difference between Judas and Peter. But I guess that's next, next week. You know, as we think about these things, I just want to close with this. Does Jesus have your intention? Does he have your attention? Is he your greatest treasure, the greatest object of your worship? Because he should be. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We share the gospel because Jesus is our greatest treasure. That's what we tell other people about. It's the most important thing in our life. It's the greatest gift we could ever give anyone. And 2 Peter says that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, this is the important part, who called us to his own glory and excellence. You want to know the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Christians love Jesus. Jesus called us to or through his own glory and excellence. A non-Christian looks at Jesus and says, no thanks. All that religious stuff. I mean, oh man, you mean if I don't believe in him, I got to go to hell? I mean, that's bad, but who wants to believe in Jesus? But I don't want to go to hell, but ah, I have to believe in Jesus. I don't want to do that. Believers look at Jesus and say, I love him. He is so amazing. He has so much glory. He has so much excellence. That's what I want. I want to be with Jesus, which, by the way, is heaven, is being with Jesus. And the the whole thing, hey, Jesus tells us about hell, right? It's real. People are going to face it. But you can't intimidate somebody into heaven. It's not how that happens. God opens up our heart to see who Jesus is, to love him, to realize that we need him. That's how we're saved. But we don't leave out all the stuff Jesus said about health. If it wasn't important, he wouldn't say it. So my question for all of us as believers, do we love Jesus with all of our heart, and is that what we're about in life? Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Help us to be people that love you. Lord, as we think about these contrasts, life is about you. You are sovereign. You are in control What you say matters. What you think matters. Lord, we bow down. We worship you. We follow you. And we are weak and we are frail. But you are who we are about. Lord, help us to live that out. Help us to love each other. Not be judgmental like Judas. 
but loving to your people in your name. Amen.